1: We have been looking at the example, the warning in 1 Corinthians 10 for the church from the nation of Israel. And we've looked at the privileges of both Israel and the church. We've been warned of the sin of Israel and the pattern the church can fall prey to. And Paul now brings this section home by giving us some application. He does so by not only summarizing his point in all of this and what he has said thus far, but gives us a powerful promise in regard to temptation. Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, having seen the privilege and the example of their sin and subsequent judgment in verses 1 through 10, we now come to this, these summary statements and this wonderful promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. Let me read that for you. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. We find in this passage three practical lessons for the church through Israel. Three practical lessons for the church through Israel which we have seen already in the past couple of weeks. The first lesson for us this morning is the example. The example. And again, he tells us in verse 11, as we've seen already, that these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We've seen Paul explain the incredible advantages that Israel had. And we've been reminded that we too have those incredible advantages. We've also seen Paul remind us of the incredible punishment that they faced when they sinned, when they fell into immorality and idolatry and grumbling. The point of all of it was to connect Israel's experience with our own. He is speaking directly to the Corinthians, Paul is, but the Lord is speaking to all of us Christians in the church age. You see, we too have those privileges, and we too are prone to wander. In other words, Paul is saying they were recorded so that we would learn from their example. That's a pretty powerful statement, that all of this was recorded for our sake. The word instruction that he uses here in the Greek is more than just teaching, more than just instruction as we would perhaps understand it in our language today. It also carries the idea of an admonition. A warning. We learn about, but also are warned about, both God's love and God's wrath. And we must understand that what we hold on our laps this morning, what we hold in our hands, our Bibles, is not just to be read and studied for our intellectual enlightenment, not just so we can answer people when they have questions about the Bible. It is so that we can live out what we learn, to live out what we are taught, what the Bible says. And though there are many rules and commands that reflect the character of God and His desire for us, there are also many, many clear examples of those who failed and fell as they serve as a history lesson for us. All of this is for us. The Old Testament is not for them. It is for us. It is for us to learn from. To learn not just of the character of God, not just in His plan and His history, His story, but the lessons contained in them. We must guard ourselves from studying the Old Testament as we perhaps studied history in high school. Just memorize the dates and facts, regurgitate them on the test, and then forget them forever. We've done this throughout our lives, haven't we, for exams? That's not the case with the Bible. We study it, and we study it again. We live it out. We study it again. We live it some more. Is that not the case for those of you who are in the habit of reading through the Bible once a year or so, something like that? You read things that you know you read last year and the year before, but wow, that's new. I didn't notice that before, and so you excel still more. And this is the truth about the example of Israel. And these examples of the past have led up to this present age. Paul refers to those who are in the ends of the ages. What is that? This includes the Corinthians of 2,000 years ago, but also includes us. We're all in the ends of the ages. This is simply the church age. You understand there were different ages in God's sovereign plan before he even created the earth. And we've seen that worked out and still working out. We are in the end. We are in the ends of the ages. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurated a new age. And at that time, the world entered the final days, the last chapter of history. What's next is what we call the end times followed by eternity. We're in the last chapter. The ending of this last chapter being the end times. And it's the same thing with any novel you read or or, or TV show or movie that you watch, right? The big twist at the ending only makes sense because of everything you've seen this, thus far. And so it is for us as we study the historical narrative of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Now this, of course, was God's plan all along. It's spoken of, it's prophesied, it's promised so clearly in the Old Testament that the record of the main character of the Old Testament, which is Israel, is seen by Paul as an example and warning for us. We live in the time when the things that were hidden and veiled are now revealed. We know them. We know who the Messiah was to be. We know the details of his life. The nation of Israel had some prophecies, but they didn't have the details as we have clearly outlined for us in the Gospels and in Acts. The veil has been lifted, says Second Corinthians 3.14. The veil has been lifted both historically, 2,000 years ago, as well as salvifically. In other words, the time has come because Christ has come. But those who do not turn their lives to Christ still have the mysteries hidden to them. And even though we are in these exciting times and we know the reality of, of Christ, the reality, realities of Christ that have long been fulfilled, as new covenant Christians, as Christians, as those in the church age, it would be a foolish mistake to overlook or to ignore the Old Testament. Yes, new covenant. Yes, new culture. Yes, new people. But same God. Same God. And he has recorded these things for our sake. It is there for our instruction. Now we know this. Paul's talked about this. He's just summarizing things that he's already said. So let's move on. The second practical lesson for the church through Israel is the exhortation. The exhortation. He writes in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He says, here's the moral of the story. Remember those when you were a kid in class? Here's the moral of the story. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In case it hasn't been clear thus far, The point that Paul is saying is making right here is simply watch out. I've told you about the Israelites. I've told you about the blessings that they received and physically present. The cloud, the fire, the manna, the quail, the clothes not wearing out for 40 years, the sandals not wearing out for 40 years. And yet, he says, I've told you, all about this for one reason, watch out. Be careful. Don't get proud because you yourself may fall just like they did. He's saying to the Corinthians, you've seen what happened to them, now here's the moral of the story, and it's the same for us. He's specifically addressing or warning all those who think they stand firm. You know what that means? You're okay. I don't need this don't tell me what to do, don't warn me, I'm good, I got it together. These are the people who think they're okay, they're doing fine. Those that can't really relate to the story of the Israelites, or at least they think they can't because they say, well, I'm not going to do those things. I stand firm. It's those that listen to the sermon and have everyone in mind, Oh, they should hear this, except for themselves. In Corinth, this is those that think they're more mature because of their advanced or supposed advanced knowledge. And thus, they say, we can freely without problem attend the feasts in those temples, those cults, without realizing how dangerous it is, not just in potentially causing others to stumble, as we saw a lot in previous chapters, but also the danger now it is to themselves in going there. Remember the connection to the Israelites' idolatry and immorality. It's why Paul points back to the Israelites' flirting, which led to full-blown acceptance, followed by participation in the idolatry of the people that God told them to either avoid or annihilate. They were to destroy them. Then they became them. And Paul says, watch out. For us today, as I said last week, it's the overconfidence. It's overconfidence in the Christian life. Can God do it? Absolutely. We're not talking about overconfidence in God. He is holy, 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 as we just sung. He is perfect. He is there. He gives you strength. but he also puts a responsibility in our lap. It's overconfidence in thinking that you are spiritually mature enough to push your conscience to the limit in your interactions with the things of the world. To toy around with gray areas and say, I'm, I'll be okay. I know it causes some people trouble, but I'm okay. I'm fine. No problem. This eventually leads to spiritual recklessness that can end in disaster, which is, Paul, which is what Paul is warning against here. He loves these people. God loves us. He doesn't want this to happen. again, Unlike the Israelites, believers will not face this kind of judgment where masses of us are struck dead because we are in Christ. Nor are we talking about the loss of salvation, which is impossible. What we are talking about is sin, discipline from the Lord. It could involve the loss of reward, the ruin of testimony, but most importantly, the failure to honor God, to glorify God in our lives. And again, if that's not your main concern, then therein lies the problem because all you are concerned about is yourself. I want to feel good. I want to do good. I want to be a successful Christian. Then, of course, you're going to fall into this trap. But if all you care about, or primarily at least, is the glory of God, then all of these things will fall into place. This is what Paul Paul means when he talks about falling at the end of the verse, to fall into sin, to fall into discipline. What this really comes down to, guys, is pride. Not necessarily an arrogant, boastful pride that we may see among celebrities and, 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 and famous athletes. Walks into the church and demands all eyes on me. This is not what we're talking about. That's rare in the church among true believers. This is simply the type of pride that forgets, if even momentarily, that you are a sinner in need of grace. Grace. It is a pride that makes you walk into the church or be among Christians and you consider yourself the the sheriff, like in the Old West. And the church is filled with outlaws that you need to rebuke and correct and take care of. When the reality is, we are all, including you, outlaws. We are all sinners. We all need to help each other. We talked about this in our men's group last Thursday. This is the person who says, what's wrong with you? In a condescending, arrogant manner instead of, is everything okay? Who wants to bash on the head rather than taking up arms and saying, we're going to see each other through this. It's a person who cries out for grace in the midst of trial and sin, receives it, then when he sees other people in the same situation, just rebukes and preaches and bashes. Forgetting how lowly they were just picked up by God's grace. We need to be careful. We need to hold up. We need to help because we understand that we are all in the same boat. We all start looking out for each other. We think we don't belong in that little safety boat in the midst of the ocean. We take our axe and we start hacking away at that boat so that we can have our own little plank that we can float away on. Guess what? We all drown. We're all in the same boat. What you're doing when this happens is not defaulting to God, but trusting in your own wisdom, in your own experience and resources, despite the fact that that pillar of fire is right beside you. That's what the Israelites did. Not the occasional miracle. Not, hey, remember back when he provided that manna? That was just a few hours ago. Hey, remember that that fire that used to be with us? Oh, the one right there? They didn't have to look back 10, 20, 30, 40 years to the crossing of the Red Sea. They had the pillar. They had the cloud. They had the fire. They had the manna every morning. They could look at their clothes. They could look at their children and say, we have been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And just like us, they have a choice. They could choose option A, which is 40 years. Come on, God. The same food every day. Walking in circles. I'm tired of it. Or they can say, my belly is full for 40 years. God, you are so good. You are so good. Not, all oh, the same food every day, but food. To provide this food every day for 40 years, Lord. Unbelievable. This, I would change this garment every five years in Egypt and this terror is from when we fled Egypt that night where I caught it on the nail in my, on my door and it ripped and for 40 years that hole has not grown bigger. You have sustained this garment for 40 years. Praise God. The choice is ours. What do you want to do? Stand up and shake your fist or fall to your knees and open your palms and worship. Right beside us. Not the physical fire or cloud, the physical manna, but listen, if you're hungry right now, it's something you did or maybe your kids did that made you miss breakfast because you have food. He has provided. And I can almost guarantee that most, if not all of you, specifically, either last night or this morning, Remembered what you wore to church last Sunday so you wouldn't wear the same thing today. Because you have more than one pair of pants, more than one dress, more than one skirt, more than one blouse, more than one shirt, which according to Scripture makes you wealthy. God gave you that. But we forget. We forget. Sliding the clothes. <gasps> Nothing to wear. Nothing to wear. Open the fridge. You've got to move stuff around so you can complain that there's nothing behind all the jars that you want to eat. God has provided. He has given us, and He has given us His Word. I mean, not to mention that we live in a country where you can own as many as these as you want which most of you don't even do that because you have it on your phone. It's in your pocket all the time. God has given us that. And we must be careful of becoming proud. We may quote the Word when we're proud to help others, but we're really just presenting ourselves. Somehow we read God, but our attitude and our heart And our mindset is saying, listen to me. Me. We rebuke people for things and we get upset when they don't listen. Why? Because they didn't listen to me. If you're really worried that they weren't listening to the Word of God, you would be grieved. You would be weeping. You would go back with humility and say, please, this is about the Lord. We get upset because I want to be listened to. And this is the person who thinks he stands firm but is in the danger of falling. We must be careful. We must be careful. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 1 Corinthians 131 let him who boasts Boast in the Lord, not himself, not his own wisdom, but in the Lord. So what do you do when you find yourself in this situation? What do you do when you find yourself thinking, I'm better than this person. I need to correct them. I need to step in because the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. So unless I say something, they're not going to change. You would never say that, but we act like that. We all do this from time to time. We're tempted to sin. We're tempted to become arrogant. We're flirting with idolatry, not a statue of false religion, but the things, the the spiritual, physical idolatries of this world that we've talked about, right, success, money, better job, family, all those types of things. Maybe we're locked into a mindset of condescending pride and arrogance. What do we do? Well, that leads us to our third and final point, Practical lesson for the church through Israel, this amazing promise. We've seen the example, the exhortation, and now the engagement. The engagement. God is engaged in your life, and you need to be engaged in your own life and in the resisting and turning away from temptation and sin. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Let's break this down phrase by phrase. First, understand that being tempted or temptation is not sin. It is what leads to sin. It often leads to sin, but it is not sin in and of itself. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. The word temptation actually simply means to test, to try, or to prove. The word itself carries no negative connotation, although often, usually it is used in Scripture with a negative connotation. Here, Paul is talking about the temptation to sin. We know what this means. Temptation is all around us. It is part of being human. It's part of being human because humans are sinners, and we know that temptation comes to fruition from our own lusts. It comes from within. Let me explain. The object of your temptation is outside of you. That woman, that car, that person you want to hurt because they offended you, that desire for anger and vengeance. But that object is not a magnet where it has an inherent ability to draw something to itself. It is your own lust that makes that otherwise benign object a source of temptation. These things are not like the fabled siren's call that drives any man who hears it crazy to jump overboard to his death. That thing is just a thing until you add your lust to it. What that means is we don't blame that thing for our temptation. It is you. Think about it. If it was that particular thing, that object, let's say a car, that drove you to temptation, to lie, to be materialistic, to be whatever, if that in, 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 and, of, in and of itself had the power to tempt without anything we add to it from our own sin, then all people in the world would be tempted by that same object. It's not inherent in the object. It's in our hearts. Nevertheless, because we are all surrounded by things we want, or the potential to perform actions that our sinful desires want us to perform, coupled with the fact that we are all sinners, you understand why temptation is a normal part of life. And this is what Paul means when he says that all temptation is, quote, common to man. That three word phrase is one word in the Greek and it simply means human. It is a characteristic of mankind. If you are human, you will be tempted. Even Jesus, again, in his humanity, was tempted. But unlike us, he never gave into temptation, he never sinned. James chapter 1, I'd like you to turn there with me. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, one of these well known passages about temptation. And so we often blame things for our sin. And sometimes we can even say, well, God is sovereign. I I blame God for my temptation. But James 1 13 and 14 clears this up for us where temptation does come from, where it doesn't come from. James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And here it is. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. By his own lust. That's it. We do this, don't we, in arguments? But you, but she, I, I know it's bad, but have you seen how she dresses? It's your own lust. Well, you said that. Well, it doesn't mean you had to say something back. It doesn't mean you had to hit him. The fact that temptation is common to man also means that there's no such thing as supernatural temptation. It also means that, and this is important on a practical level, there's no unique temptation. We often feel as if we're the only ones. We're all alone. Nobody gets it. But you can rest assured that whatever temptation you are facing is not unique. Even if Nobody physically around you or even in the church gets it. No Christians you know can sympathize with that particular temptation. That doesn't matter because we have a faithful high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. And thankfully, that high priest is Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He gets it, and He's there for us. So even when you think nobody around you can understand, take comfort in the fact that the one who resides with you and in you does. Paul goes on to tell us that his sympathy is not all that God offers. He goes on to write in the end of second part of verse 13, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. We've seen the characteristic of God's faithfulness throughout this chapter. We've talked about it in our lives. We've seen it in the Israelites' lives not only evidenced physically through the leading of the cloud and the fire and the provision of the food and water for the Israelites in the wilderness, but also in our own lives through His, less miraculous, but faithful nonetheless, provision, protection, and guidance. The word faithful in this verse grammatically bridges the weakness and temptation of all of mankind with the power and provision, the provision of escape by God. And just as the verse progresses, so should we in the midst of temptation to stop looking at ourselves and our lusts and our temptations and start looking to God. The particular aspect of faithfulness that Paul refers to here is God's provision of a way of escape from that temptation so that you can endure it. A way of escape is just that, a way out, an escape route. An escape specifically from the temptation that you are facing, it's another option other than giving into temptation. You have sin or you have the way out. There is always an escape route. There is always a way out. You say always, but there is this one time, no, always. It, it is no accident that the Holy Spirit directed the Apostle Paul before he wrote about this escape route to say God is faithful. That is the foundation of all of this. There's always a way out. And so, have you ever you ever justified your sin by saying that the temptation was too strong? Yeah, I had no choice; I had to give in. I've been able to resist before, but this particular time, you don't get it. I, I just had to do it. You, you don't understand. You know, you, you you if you met her, you'd understand. If you saw what she looked like, how she dresses, you would get it. I had to do it. Now, you know, you know me. I'm a patient guy, but you didn't hear what he said. I know I should have got angry and yelled at him and said those things, but when he started belittling my wife, that's where I draw the line, and and I just lost it. I had to do it. No, you didn't. You chose to. And by choosing sin, you choose to ignore the way out. It's not always easy. It's not always clear, but it's there, and it's holy, and it's God-given, and it's right. It's the right choice to make. I read for you earlier Hebrews 4.15 that tells us that Christ is our faithful high priest and He sympathizes with our weaknesses. The next verse, Hebrews 4.16, says this, Therefore, Because He can sympathize with our weaknesses, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, what's the way out? First of all, it's this, that God is always there and you as a believer have that access to Him, that relationship with Him where you can draw near to the throne of grace. Now, that time of need spoken of by the writer of Hebrews is not just during temptation or not just during trial. The context clearly refers to temptations. The key is to turn to Him and to His provided way of escape immediately. To discipline your mind and body to take it. So that you are ready. When you are not in the midst of temptation, to know where the exits are. They are legally required to be brightly lit for a reason. The lights go down in a movie theater. Those annoying exit lights are still on for a reason. They're there for a reason. There's a reason that a flight attendant tells you the exit plan should there be an emergency before you even leave the ground. Because though you are completely ignoring her, she is legally obligated to let you know so that you are, be, you are prepared. We need to be prepared. We need to tell ourselves right now that when temptation comes, I'm going to take the way out. Because if we are not Set to take the way out and to take the way out immediately. The longer we rest in that temptation, the harder it will be, even though the way out is very clear. The more you mold the idea over in your mind, the more tempting it becomes. You've experienced this. If you just walk away and forget about it, it's easy. Your blood comes down from a boil. But if you sit there and rehearse over and over in your mind, look up the guy on social media, start thinking about things you can say to him, it gets a lot harder not to do anything. You've already sinned because of the anger in your heart. Let me use a mundane example of a physical temptation, not a sin. You're craving ice cream in the middle of the night. Ready in your PJs, lying in bed. You know salt and straw does not close for another hour. It's a lot easier to just stay there, get dressed, find my hat or do my hair or whatever, you know, get in the car, all this kind of thing, find my mask. But if you do get dressed... And get in the car and park right outside because at, at that time of night, there's, no, there's plenty of parking on Burlingame Avenue. Don't ask me why I know. <laughs> You're sitting there looking at that shop, smelling the waffle cone smell wafting in. You could still drive home, but chances are slimmer now, maybe 50-50. Now, if you're out of the car and you are at the point where you're holding three or four empty tasting spoons in your hand, you can still not buy the scoop, but let's be honest, you're buying the scoop. It's the same thing with the temptation to sin. It's the same when that girl just walks by. She's just a girl. You see hundreds of them every day. You don't have to look. You don't have to fantasize. You don't have to do anything but keep walking. But if you take that second glance, then the third, then let your imagination run wild, you're now at 50-50. And if you follow her home or go to your own home and jump on the wrong website, the way out is still there, but you're probably not going to take it. He calls you a name, insults you, stokes your pride. You can walk away or you can stay there and start thinking of the best comeback. Let your pride kick in and tell him you're not going to walk away. Now you're at 50-50. All you've got to do is open your mouth and the chances are slim that you're going to do the right thing. The way out is still there, but you probably won't take it. We read earlier in James 1.14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Next verse says, Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Not good, friends. James is not just explaining the inevitable. It is a warning to not let this happen in the first place. He says there is a sequence of events that happen. He's not just saying, "Oh, for your information, this is what is going to happen." No, he's giving you these sequences of events that ends disastrously because it's not just a, a path that you walk, it's not just a timeline on your whiteboard. It is a water slide and where if you take that first step, you're done. You will Conceive your lust into sin. It will happen. So avoid it. The reason he can even give that warning is because of the reality of 1 Corinthians 10.13 that there is a way of escape. Otherwise, he would just say, sorry, guys, sometimes it's going to happen and you're really going to just have to try to sin less. No, he's saying there's a way of escape. They work together, the Scriptures. The provision of the way of escape is connected with our ability to endure it. It's not our own strength that allows us to endure it, but the way of escape. This does not mean, by the way, and this is very important, this does not mean that God removes temptation. We have temptation. This way of escape is an escape from the temptation that exists. He doesn't remove it. This also doesn't mean that we will not go through any difficulties, any trials. People often use this passage, this verse, First Corinthians ten thirteen, to talk about trials, right? He won't give you more than you can handle. Uh, there is a, an exegetical nuance of where this can uh, also refer to trials, that word temptation. But the reality is, is when we go through trials is perhaps when we are most tempted to get angry, to lose hope to get mad at God, to get mad at others, to get proud and say, I don't want anyone's help. So it's the same idea. But what we are promised all the time, every temptation is the means of exit is always there. The existence of an emergency exit to this building does not mean there will never be a fire or an earthquake. It just means that the exits are there. So in the same way, the provision of a way of escape doesn't mean there won't be temptation. There won't be people, men or women, dressed inappropriately that walk in front of you, billboards, advertisements, people who are rude to you that stoke your anger, people who cut you off and almost cause you to spin out in the rain on the 101. They'll still be there. But rest assured, so is the way of escape. And so the key for our exits in this building is that if there is a fire or an earthquake, that you don't get panicked and so focused on the danger and damage that you forget to run, not walk, run for the exit. I'm speaking metaphorically because I believe if there is an earthquake, you're supposed to walk, not run. So just don't want to contradict anything that the firemen or your teachers are saying. Paul is saying run for the exit because the exit is there. You know, you may think, well, bright red lights, the big doors, I walk through them. If only the exit from temptation was as clearly marked as an an emergency exit, bright light, same rectangle sign that we see in every building in this whole country. But you know what? It may not be a bright light. probably isn't. Fair to say it won't be. But it is just as clear and easy most of the time. Walk away. Maybe that's not the exit for that particular temptation. But other possible exits, depending on the temptation, are just as simple and just as clear. In fact, they can all be stated in two words. Walk away. If not that, look away. Stop fantasizing. Shut mouth. Log off. Turn off. Run away. And from there, you don't just stop. You don't just... Run away from something. You run to something. Just as simple. Trust God. Speak truth. Count blessings. Be thankful. Pray prayer. The way of escape is there. And the only thing that makes the way of escape, or taking the exit route difficult, is your own lust? Is your own procrastination in taking the exit route? Oh, I'll do it, but just one, one more one more episode. I know it's bad. it's causing me to stumble those 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 violent scenes the the nude scenes but man i just need to know what happens or just one more episode in this season turn off that's the exit it's so simple but we get so focused we get so engaged and and then we want and and sometimes you know what we do sometimes we actually willingly knowing there's a temptation there we're not tempted yet we walk into the temptation because we want that you walk into the fight because you want to you want to say something you want to hurt someone you want to show everyone how witty you are and you can put them down you walk into that room You walk into that place. You turn on that show. You get on that website. You engage that individual, whatever it is. And we play around because, and here's the danger, we look at the Israelites and say, God will not do this to me. I am saved by grace. He doesn't do this in the church age. He won't kill me and my family and my kids He'll forgive me. He's already forgiven me. He died on the cross. So, hey, party time. And that's what the Corinthians were doing when they were going to these feasts at the idols' temples. And this is what made Paul embark in this whole description of their just partaking a little bit in one little peripheral area. These are the people. We're in their land. They're inviting us to this feast. Why not? Would you like to come and bow down to Baal of Peor? Why not? You've joined us. Would you like to sleep with our women? Why not? Yes, this connects all the way back to gray areas. But all sin and all temptation, this is such a wonderful promise And even if you think the exit is not there, even if you didn't see it, even if you want to blame other people, the reality, the biblical truth from the mouth of God is that he has provided a way of escape. And look, if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, you look back and the reason we often have regrets about our sins is not just because of the sin, but because we know, we saw, it's like, I knew it. I, I shouldn't have gone. I knew I shouldn't have gone. I told you. We were having this conversation, and you're, you were even surprised. Remember that? You were surprised that I went because I told you I shouldn't go. Remember we were talking about this in small group, about, uh, you know, us, uh, me arguing with my mom all the time. And I, I knew I was mad at her, and, and she said it wasn't a rush for me to come over to help her with her laptop, but I, I went over. And all of you pray that I wouldn't go over, but I went over when I was mad, and I knew it. I made her feel dumb for not knowing how to use her computer. We, we look back, right, and we know, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew I was just getting that conversation to, to, to look at her closer. There's always a way out. You know that, you've seen it. And you know now from scripture, you've always known that there is always going to be a way out. So when all is said and done, it's very simple. Take the way out. Well, what what was that about? The provision? What about what is no. Here's the lesson when tempted, take the way out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us that you can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's just another wonderful benefit of you coming to earth. We focus so much on the crux of that, which is so important. You dying for our sins and yet to know that even in your life you experience things so that you can sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank you, Father, that there is a way out all the time and I pray that we would take it. Help us to not flirt with sin. Help us to not be overconfident. Help us to flee temptation. And then continue to grow us, Lord, so that we may be greater lights to a greater variety of people without being tempted. But when we are, Lord, may we take the way of escape. I pray that you would help us to be committed and disciplined in mind now so that when the opportunity comes, that we would quickly thank you so much that that was always there. Thank you that you are not like these gods of these pagan temples and cults that they believe sits there up in the sky and enjoys watching our misery and blaming things on us. But you are there. You want us not to sin. And may our desire be the same as yours. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Well, let's stand.